So remember, we don't have class tomorrow. And we'll meet again after break. So will we finish the intimations of today? Bets? Five bucks. Yeah. Five bucks? So is, is that your way of saying, I'll pay you five bucks to finish it? <laughs> Look, you have an entire book. What, you just want to do a book in two classes? Looking at every word? Good. Um, are you liking it? Okay, good. So where we got, we sort of rushed um, uh, at the end of class on Monday. But uh, where we got on Monday was to the end of stanza four. Um, Blake, our, our friend Blake, our pal Blake, um, by the way, just um, as a note, and I don't know if anyone has said this before. They must have, but, um, but I'll say it again. Um, I had forgotten. I didn't realize. I'd never put together um, the phrase, my face turns um, green and pale um, in uh, the experienced nurse's song. Do you know who else uses that phrase, green and pale? Your face is green and pale. Lady Macbeth says it to Macbeth um, when he's being fearful, uh, which is a lot of the first half of the play. Um, she says, why is your face so green and pale? Um, so I think that's a, actually a kind of interesting um, echo. Do with it what you will. Write a paper on it if you like. Um, but I do think that's an interesting echo. So I thought I, I would um, mention that. Um, OK, so Blake. Uh, had very ambivalent feelings about Wordsworth. Blake was 13 years older than Wordsworth. Um, unknown, relatively unknown, especially as a poet in his own lifetime. Um, but knowing himself, as he did, to be a great poet. And um, he <coughs> didn't have a university education. Blake didn't. Um, he was a printer, and um, he became a writer partly, and an artist partly, because um, that's what he also did professionally, was to print um, uh, etchings, and um, including the texts that went with etchings. Um, but he read Wordsworth, and his annotations to Wordsworth survive, and you can, um, they're, they're actually pretty hilarious. If you look at Blake's edition of Wordsworth, um, there are places where when Wordsworth is being pretty crappy, which he became, um, most of Wordsworth's poetry is not good. And that's because most of Wordsworth's poetry was written after he was 35 or 40. And um, it's his notorious decline as a poet after about the age of 35, his becoming a kind of Tory um, supporter of, um, of government authority um, is something that is a cause for lamentation among his friends and followers for, um, for two centuries afterwards. Yeats, since somehow we seem to talk about Yeats in every class. Um, Yeats talks about um, what can go wrong for a poet, that a poet might, like Wordsworth, wither into 80. Wordsworth was 80 when he died. Wither into 80, but at some point perhaps find um, in some um, garret an uneaten crust of the idealism of his youth. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, the dichotomy you usually get with the romantic poets comes partially from Wordsworth, that 
you either die young or you live to see yourself become a really terrible poet. Yeah, so, exactly. So you can either be Shelley or Wordsworth. Right, and Shelley, who did die young, who was 29 when he died, um, in an early poem of his called Alaster, um, talks about um, what's happened to Wordsworth. Um, Shelley was born 22 years after Wordsworth was born, and he died 28 years before Wordsworth died. Um, so, boy, was he ever bookended by Wordsworth. But um, basically, he says uh, a real poet can live more in 30 years, he said when he was 24, um, than other people, even if they live to 90, which is essentially what Wordsworth did. He quotes Wordsworth against himself. Um, Wordsworth has a good line in a poem, the good die first and those whose hearts are dry as summer's dust burn to the socket. And um, he quotes that line as an epigraph in a long poem about what's happened to Wordsworth. Um, he also has a poem called To Wordsworth, or, um, in which he says, which is a response to the intimations ode. And he says, poet of nature, thou hast wept to know that things depart which never may return, friendship and youth and love and love's first glow. These leave the heart. These these do something, leaving me to mourn. Then he says, "These common woes I feel," and he picks the word "common" as you'll see, the earth and every common sight, from the intimations ode. These common woes I feel, but then he says, "But I feel another woe. There's another woe which you too suffer, but I alone deplore, which is you lost your youth, like everyone else, and you wrote great poems about that." Um, but I, I've lost something that um, really bothers me and doesn't bother you, which is I've lost Wordsworth. There was this guy, Wordsworth, he was really great. And then look what happened to him. Um, and you don't care because you, you actually did it. Um, so that Wordsworth going in that direction, um, that's something that lots of people saw and lamented, Byron. Um, was furious at Wordsworth for doing that. Browning has a poem called The Lost Leader, um, and The Lost Leader is Wordsworth. Um, I wonder if it's in this. It's worth, it, it's, these are words worth reading. If I know, it's early. It's early, it, the fact that it's early is what made me say that, and the fact that it's early is what made you not even notice that I was saying it. Um, <coughs> lost son, lost, no. Who's got their computer? Just look up Lost Leader, someone who does. Um, uh, it, is it is worth reading. At any rate, Blake, um, who was older than Wordsworth, but as he put it um, in a letter he wrote about a month or two before he died to a friend of his. This is a letter that, that Yeats writes to a friend. It's, Dear Cumberland, it begins, I have been very near the gates of death and am returned an old man, um, very frail and, and, um, and weak but not in the real man, not in the imagination that liveth forever. Yours, Blake. Um, so quite a letter to get. Um, you could see why someone would save it, yeah. Browning? Browning, the lost leader. Yeah, sure. So, um, so this is a kind of military poem, but this is Browning about Wordsworth. Um, just for a handful of silver he left us, just for a ribbon to stick in his coat, found the one gift of which fortune bereft us, lost all the others she let us devote. They, with the gold to give, doled him out silver. So much was theirs who so little allowed. How all our copper had gone for his service. Rags were they purple, his heart had been proud. 
We that had loved him so, followed him, honored him, lived in his mild and magnificent eye, learned his great language, caught his clear accents, made him our pattern to live and to die. Shakespeare was of us, Milton was for us, Burns, Shelley were with us. They watch from their graves. He alone breaks from the van and the free men. He alone sinks to the rear and the slaves. Um, we'll stop there. There's another stanza. But the point is the shock uh, to, to the other poets of Wordsworth essentially becoming, he, he got a uh, sinecure from the conservative government. Um, he got an empty job for which he was paid money. And then he wrote poems um, about how bad revolutionaries were and how good um, uh, governments were. Um, he has a series of really notoriously bad sonnets called Sonnets on the Punishment of Death, um, which is a series of sonnets supporting the death penalty. Um, and he has another sonnet. This is all late Wordsworth. He has another um, sonnet in which he is really, really angry about the introduction of the secret ballot. Um, what could be more evil than people being able to vote without, telling, without having to tell people who they voted for? Um, so he turned into something terrible um, in the opinion, I myself have no political opinions, but in the opinion of his um, peers and his followers. Um, Blake really admired uh, some of Wordsworth and really hated other stuff that Wordsworth wrote. This is all um, a long wind-up to say that one of Blake's marginalia is in um, Wordsworth wrote this really long poem called The Excursion, which uh, you shouldn't read more than once in your life. Um, and um, when Shelley, when the Shelleys read it, they were very eager for it to come out. They were all excited because it's Wordsworth's long philosophical poem. Uh, when it came out, um, they read it in Venice and Mary Shelley in her diary, you know that Mary and Percy Shelley were married, right? Mary Shelley in her diary wrote, uh, we spent the day um, floating around in a gondola in Venice, um, reading the excursion aloud to each other. He has become a slave. Um, that's what people thought when it came out. Um, so what Blake did was he drew, as you know, he, was a, he had gifts as a graphic artist. Um, he drew, um, you can find this online somewhere, I think. Um, he drew someone squatting bare-assed at the top of a margin of a page of the excursion in his copy. So someone at the very top is squatting bare-assed, and down the margin are turds that have come out of this guy's <laughs> ass. Um, and that's what he thought about the excursion. So he had um, mixed feelings, let's say, about Wordsworth. Um, but he said, this moment, but there's a tree of many one, a single field which I have looked upon. He said that moment, no matter how many times he read the intimations out, that reduced him to tears. Um, that sudden intrusion. So what's happened in the poem is that Wordsworth, um, at his greatest, but recognizing the future Wordsworth who's about to come, um, praying in the previous poem, at least in this anthology, um, so be it when I shall grow older, let me die. Well, it wasn't when he grew old, and yet he didn't die till he was 80. The very thing he's praying for at um, 35 or at 32 
that he should always maintain the idealism of his youth and the, the spontaneous and rapturous love of the world and love of nature, he's already feeling that going and he's resisting it. Um, and the moment of feeling it and resisting it is the moment where Wordsworth is most intense. But the cost of that is that it really is going and he really is turning into an old fart and he really does become an old fart way before his time. There are a few amazing poems that he writes after the age of 40, but really only you could count them on the fingers of one hand, um, the great poems after the age of 40 that Wordsworth wrote. Um, something terrible he sees approaching. There's a poem by James Merrill called The Thousand and Second Night um, in which he says that um, it begins, it actually doesn't begin, one of the sections begin, begins, um, I have just come across a letter that I wrote at 16 to myself at twice that age, accusing me of becoming the conservative, unimaginative <coughs> creature that I now am. Um, so knowing what you're going to be like in the future, um, people do know. Um, people, lots of people hate their future selves because they know that everyone or almost everyone turns into the kind of thing that you don't like as a youth um, and yet you know that it happens to everyone. You know, look at adults now and think that they were all a certain generation were all um, amazingly rebellious hippies in the 60s and look what's become of them. Um, so people have a sense that life does this to you and that can intensify their resistance to this. That's what Wordsworth was feeling at the age of 32 when he begins the intimations. I mean, I think yeah. To be fair to Wordsworth, you have to say he lived through the French Revolution and it, it really it broke his heart, I think. You actually read, yeah, there's a piece he wrote at the very beginning of the revolution before all the blood, all the bloodshed had started and then one he wrote after the terror and he was brokenhearted by Oh, yeah. By what came above all the idealism of that. And that really ruined his ideal. Well, but it didn't. <laughs> it didn't, actually, because um, one of the ecstatic things that he says in the prelude is that Robespierre is dead. And that's great. That means that the revolution, in some sense, uh, which Robespierre had turned into puritanical terror, um, survived it. Um, but then once um, Napoleon comes on the scene, it's Napoleon who really makes him say, no, we have to defend um, uh, the Tory resistance to Napoleon's revolutionary um, um, actions. It's, it was more, the, 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 the terror started him um, on a road to right-wing um, uh, order versus, free, versus liberty, um, but it was Napoleon who really cemented that. No, you do have to feel sorry for him, but um, and and Shelley does, but he says, you know, there's a huge loss there. Wordsworth is a poet, lost what made Wordsworth a poet, um, lost originality and lost um, um, a sense of of spontaneity. What he says about the French Revolution again in the Prelude was, uh, "Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive." That is when the French Revolution started and when um, centuries of oppression um, seemed to be about to be overcome. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven, he says. 
Um, he had an illegitimate child in France. Um, he was he was his junior year abroad was was pretty um, broad. Um, but then, well, just see what happens to Amanda Knox in the next thirty years. Um, and uh, that was that was a little bit of a reach. Um, but um, whatever you think about him personally, and personally I think he was pretty amazing all his life. Um, as a poet, there's no, almost no poetry worth reading that he wrote after 1810. Um, not quite zero, but almost zero. Um, and, and the other poets like Browning found this awful, like Shelley found this awful, like Byron found this awful. Um, so, um, and like Blake, but at any rate, so in the Intimations Ode, I'm afraid you might win your bet, um, in the Intimations Ode, um, what you have is Wordsworth, you should think, and you should take seriously this thought, because he abandoned the poem for three years, is writing four stanzas and the four stanzas are meant to be a kind of timely utterance in which he writes himself out of his sense of loss. So there was a time <coughs> when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. It is not now as it hath been of your turn wheresoe'er I may by night or day. The things that I have seen I now can see no more. But by writing it, he tries to see it. That gives you one motivation for art, one motivation for expression, is, as Wallace Stevens will put it, to see hard or to hear hard, which is the task of the artist. To hear hard, to work at it, can recover something that's lost that if you write a poem about what you've lost, the act, the intensity that goes into the writing about it may be a way to get it back, to recover it. Um, to recover it in poetry if you can't recover it in um, spontaneous, normal, everyday experience. And um, you can maybe feel that Wordsworth is trying to do that. Shout round me, let me hear thy shouts, thou happy shepherd boy. Um, I hear, I hear with joy, I hear. He's got it. It's almost there, but there's a tree of many one, and that's what gets Blake weeping. So you get to line 57, and it ends with this despairing question. Whither is it fled, the visionary gleam? Where is it now, the glory and the dream? And I think you can imagine that as a finished poem but a poem which is serious enough about what it says that the fact that it's finished doesn't mean that it matters. As far as he's concerned, yes, I finished this poem about loss. So what? It's not worth it. And he gives it up. Yeah. I think there's almost something paradoxical about the last two lines. Because what he's writing about is his failure as a poet. But those last two lines are, are incredible. They are. I mean, those are two of my favorite lines from any poem following two god-awful lines. The pansy at my feet doth the same tale repeat, mm -hmm. which is bad. Yeah. And then he, and then he, follow, he ends it up with this 
incredible two lines of poetry. Yeah. So it's yeah. almost like he, in losing it, he gets it back a little bit, but not not quite. Yeah, um, and it's the not quite that matters. That is that it's a kind of standard bet or standard bargain that poets make that um, the loss that a poem records, not all poems are poems of loss, but in poems of loss, which I think we tend to think of as the most intense poetry, poetry of loss, um, poetry of grief, elegy, um, those are the poems we go to when we need poetry, when um, we ourselves are experiencing some kind of grief or loss. Um, the general bet that poets are making is something like the compensation for this loss in the real world. Whatever that compensation is, never enough, but the compensation for that loss is the intensity of the poem that describes it. That's that Beckett poem that I quoted for you. I would like my love to die and for the rain to be falling upon the graveyard and upon me walking the wet streets, mourning the first and last to ever love me. That if I had that loss, then I could have a really good poem about loss, is what Beckett is saying. Now, does he mean it? Of course not. Um, but what he's describing is um, a kind of poetic vocation that if I lose everything, at least I will have something that will enable me to write an absolutely great poem. Um, again, Merrill, since we'll be doing Merrill at the end of the course, um, asks as a young man, or describes himself as a young man, he says, young chameleon, that was him, young chameleon, I used to ask how one got sufficiently imbued with otherness, and now I see. So when I was young, I wanted to have all these experiences of otherness, of things that I couldn't control, of the um, refractoriness and alienation of the world. I wanted to be imbued with that. I was a chameleon. Keats calls the poet a chameleon. Um, the poet is someone who always takes on the colors of the thing that he or she is writing about. Young chameleon, I used to ask, how on earth one got sufficiently imbued with otherness? Merrill asks, remembering Keats. And then the grim response in his 40s, and now I see. So yeah, he can write these poems. But what did he lose in order to be able to write them? So that's always the balancing act. Wordsworth does have these two great lines. But what's the cost? The visionary gleam and the glory and the dream. Yeah, two great lines of poetry. Is it worth it? No. What makes the lines great? The fact that they're registering that it's not worth it. The very fact that these lines are saying it's not worth it to write these lines. What I have left are these lines. And they're maybe as good as poetry can be, but they're not as good as what they're lamenting. There's not, they're not as good as what's been lost. So he puts the poem aside. We can know that he feels this way by the fact that he doesn't regard this poem as something he wants to publish. It's not, hooray, I have this poem. Look what I've, look what I've saved from the wreck, this poem. Um, I've stammered out this elocution on the burning deck of my life. But so what? 
he doesn't publish it. Then three years later, he returns to it. And it's really crucial to see that the return marks a huge shift in how he tries to handle this sense of loss. So it's still the same May day in the poem. You know, Joyce spent um, 10 years, is it 10 years? No, seven years writing Ulysses, which all takes place June 16th, 1904. So um, it's seven years writing about a single day, or it's where it spends three years writing about a single day. Um, it's still a sweet May morning, still the same sweet May morning, but it's three years later. And now he begins, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. Now, what he'd said before is stuff like the sunshine is a glorious birth. The word birth has appeared before. <coughs> and it refers to a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. That's what's gone. What's the difference between line 58 and the first 57 lines? Our is referring not just to himself. Okay, so our birth, this happens to everyone. Yeah, good. Um, but our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. What has he said at the beginning of the poem about early childhood? Remember, the full title of the ode is Ode, Intimations of Immortality from Recollections of Early Childhood. What has he said earlier in the poem about early childhood? How does he describe early childhood in the first four stanzas? It's great. It's great. There was a time when Meadow Grove and Stream, the earth, and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light. So it was a time of celestial light, he says. That's what's missing, that celestial light of early childhood. But now, he says, actually, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life's star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar. He hasn't talked about the soul before. But now three years later, he does talk about the soul. He's not talking about the Christian soul. He's talking more about a soul in Plato. Um, the kind of soul that Plato says is the center of human experience, of human subjectivity. So the soul that rises with us, our life star at that elsewhere it's setting and cometh from afar. Um, can anyone make sense of that metaphor? The soul rises with us but set elsewhere? Yeah, make sense of it. I mean, the way I think of it is almost not in a religious sense, but in the spiritual sense that when we come down to earth, when we're, you know, imprisoned in this fleshly body, we've come from someplace better, a place where a place where poetry comes from, where our soul is bathed in celestial light. Yeah, okay, good. Um, what, however, just um, to be very explicit about this, um, how would a star set somewhere else but rise in this world? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I, I think, but I still think you're talking about the tenor rather than the vehicle, which is fine. You both are, and that's fine. Um, but just on pure vehicle, 
Um, what star would you see rising but not setting in our world? The sun, the moon. Um, you, could see, you could see the moon rising but not setting or setting but not rising. Um, we don't tend to call the moon a star, although Dante did, but Wordsworth wouldn't have. Um, sorry? Polaris, you never see do either. Yeah. Polaris is always there. You never yeah, see it no, rise or set. Astronomy last semester. The morning star? Yeah. yeah. Venus yeah. is either the morning star or the evening star. Do people know this? Yeah. Okay, so Venus, there are two planets. The word star, by the way, only came to mean sun around um, in the 18th century. Uh, before the 18th century, pe people didn't know that stars were suns. Um, they thought that they were just these these little heavenly lights that were less bright than the planets. The planets were the brightest stars, and then there was the sun. They all got the name star, just meaning a luminous body in heaven. Um, but when you read Dante or when you read a pre-18th century writer, if they talk about the stars, they're talking about the stars the way little kids talk about stars, not anything that you would know beyond, in our day, beyond the age of six or so, which is um, what, what we know from modern science. Um, so Venus is closer to the sun than the Earth is. That means that if you're looking in the general direction of Venus, you're also looking in the general direction of what? The sun. Yeah. So Venus is because whenever we're looking at Venus, we're looking pretty much in the same direction as the sun. We can only see Venus in a sliver of time. If it rises before sunrise, the sun will rise shortly after it. We may see Venus with the sun just below the horizon. And then we can see Venus and then the sun will rise after it and we won't see it anymore. That's Venus as the morning star. Venus appearing no more than an hour before dawn. Or if we can see Venus, it may be that the sun has already set and Venus is going to set shortly after it. So Venus can only be seen in the sky by the naked eye without filtering and so on at dawn or at dusk. That's an amazing thing about Venus. Um, I mean, it's amazing sort of, sort of um, experientially, symbolically. It's the most beautiful star in the sky. Um, but it can only be seen on the horizon. And it can only be seen as morning star or evening star. Um, it took a while for people to be sure they were the same star. Um, ancient astronomers guessed that they were. Um, but they didn't know for sure. And I think it was only after Galileo that people <coughs> realized for sure that Venus, that the morning star was the evening star. Um, but you can see Venus in the morning, and then you won't see it in the evening. Or you can see it in the evening, but then you won't see it in the morning. Um, and you can see why this might be of interest to poets. So the interest here to Wordsworth, I partly say this because earlier editions of the Norton Anthology, um, just put, had a footnote which said the soul that rises with us, our life star, and the footnote was the sun. Yeah. And it's not. The sun does not have elsewhere its setting and doesn't come from afar. Um, and as you'll see, the star fades. So our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, that elsewhere its setting cometh from afar. So our soul rises with us 
before the sun does. So the sun is going to be what he's about to call the light of common day. And what he's trying to do to put this in the terms that the poem opens, the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. <coughs> the world is still covered with light, but it's not celestial light. So now he's trying to say, well, the celestial light comes from elsewhere. It's the light of Venus, the light of the soul, a light that comes from elsewhere and not the light of common day that will flood it and make us unable to see it anymore. Like the ghost, to quote Shelley, who will, re, who will paraphrase this passage, um, the, um, he will say that the soul um, stayed with him. Um, he's actually, it's, it's a character who represents Wordsworth who says this. Um, like more dimly than a day appearing dream, the ghost of a forgotten form of sleep. Um, that's what happens when the common light of the sun rises. So sunrise in the first four stanzas of this poem that represents the glory and the celestial light of childhood. Now in stanza five, sunlight, rather than being the thing that's lost, is the thing that causes the loss of light. Sunlight is not the good light. It's the light that floods and um, um, prevents us from seeing the good light of the soul, the soul that rises with us, our life star. So our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, that elsewhere it's setting and cometh from afar. Not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. So we're born into this world, but we still have clinging around us the glory and the light and the soul of a different world, of a pre-existent world. That idea, that myth of pre-existence comes from Plato. Um, that is, Plato says, we all existed before we were born. And then when we are put into this sublunary world, when we're born here, we are afflicted with amnesia and we forget this other greater world, which is our true home. And, but that amnesia isn't total. So if any of you, have any of you read any Platonic dialogues? Um, sort of, do, you know, do people know what Plato's doctrine of the forms is? So Plato basically says, look, no two chairs are alike. This is a standard Platonic argument. No two chairs are alike. Look at a chair, look at another chair. And there'll always be, even in these mass-produced chairs, which there weren't any in, in, in Athens and Plato's day, but even in mass-produced chairs, they won't be exactly alike. They'll have scratches. There are always differences. Um, and yet we recognize them as the same thing. How can that be? Um, no two people are alike. No two snowflakes are alike. I don't know if you knew that. Um, and yet we recognize them as being versions of the same thing. And yet the thing they're versions of doesn't exist on Earth. It's not that you can find on Earth the snowflake that all other snowflakes are versions of. They're somehow all versions of the same thing, but it's not a thing to be found on Earth. Um, we recognize them, and his crucial word there is recognize, because 
we have in our minds, we are born with in our minds, a memory of the true ideal heavenly form that all these earthly forms are copies of. The prototype or the archetype is in heaven. And the fact that we can recognize things as living beings means that we are dredging up from our memories of a pre-existent state the true version of, of what these things are copies of. That's an argument that he gives. And a famous way that he gives this argument is a geometry lesson in the dialogue, the Mino. Do people know about this? Um, there's, he, he is having an argument with someone about preexistence. And he says, look, um, I'll prove it. There's a, bring, bring that slave boy here. We'll stoop in the dirt. They did geometry in, in uh, the way he did geometry in ancient Greece um, when paper was incredibly expensive and even slate and chalk was incredibly expensive, is you either did it in the dirt outside or you did it in ashes on a table. You would pour ashes onto a table and then draw diagrams in the ashes. Um, that was known as a very primitive iPad. Um, so the way, um, so what Plato does, or what Socrates does, Socrates is Plato's main philosophical character does, is he asks this boy to come over and he says, Okay, here's a square which has um, a whose side is one, um, and it, whose area is also one. Now draw a square which is double the, double the area. So the slave does what everyone does, which is to draw a two by two square. And then Socrates just asks some questions about the two by two square, and the slave quickly realizes that no, he's quadrupled the area. Um, and he thinks about it for a while, and then figures out how to double the area of the original square. And what Socrates is proving, and it is an important thing um, that he has proved, only it, 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 do, it doesn't have the literal significance he thinks it does, is that simply by being asked questions, the slave boy can remember the pure form of mathematics that he forgot when he was born. That as Socrates asks him these questions, he goes into his memory. And in his memory, he remembers the truth of mathematics. Um, in modern day parlance, we would say the truth of ma mathematics is logic, and that we're born with innate ideas of logic. Um, but that was Socrates and Plato were the first to say that. So we are born forgetting what we nevertheless know. And Wordsworth, much later in his life, said, um, I was using this as a way to think through these issues. I'm not saying, oh, here's what I really believe about theology in the afterlife. What he's saying is, this is the myth that I used, um, the myth of anamnesia, as it's called. That is, of lifting the amnesia of birth that Plato describes. That's what I'm using in the second part of the Intimations Ode. So, what he's now saying is early childhood looks so spectacular, not because it is in itself so spectacular, but because that was the time when we were still saturated with the glory of a pre-existent state. We came to Earth forgetful 
of that pre-existent state, but still surrounded by its glory. And everywhere we looked, we saw the glory that we brought with us. So the earth and every common sight and nature, they're not what's great. We saw them as great because we were so close to heaven when we were born. Earth isn't close to heaven, but we were new arrived from heaven when we were born, from a platonic heaven, not a Christian heaven. Um, Wordsworth becomes intensely Christian later on in his life, but he's not Christian yet um, in anything but name. So our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life starteth at elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. Heaven lies about us in our infancy. Not that we are in heaven, but that we see heaven everywhere in our infancy. Anyone know literally what infant means? What its root meaning is? You know that in French it means child, in English it means a very young child, baby. But do you know why it means baby? What it means to be infans in Latin? I think you said not being able to speak. Not being able, oh, did I say that? Yes, that's what, ah, I repeat myself, who knew? <laughs> um, not being able to speak, yeah. So not being able to be a poet yet. Oh yeah, of course I said that because of the lullabies. Um, not being able to be a poet yet, um, unable to speak. Um, Heaven lies about us in our infancy, and then here's where you know that the change is there. Shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy. The prison house. That prison house is our life. That prison house is the world. Shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy, but he beholds the light, and whence it flows, he sees it in his joy. The youth who daily farther from the east must travel still is nature's priest, and by the vision splendid is on his way attended. The vision of what? The platonic heaven, um, and also in particular the soul as the morning star. The youth is traveling from the east every day further, um, as the star is rising, as all astronomical things does, it rises in the east. And he still is attended by the morning star. He goes westward, the morning star goes westward. And by the vision splendid is on his way attended. At length, the man perceives it die away and fade into the light of common day. So you have to see that the it there metaphorically is the morning star, the soul that rises with us, our life star. At length, the man perceives it die away and fade into the light of common day. So why does earth look so good? He explains in the next stanza, the earth fills, earth fills her lap with pleasures of her own. So yeah, when you're young, there's a lot of joy to be found on earth. Yearnings she hath in her own natural kind. Nature um, is nice. Nature is wonderful. And even with something of a mother's mind and no unworthy aim, the homely nurse <coughs> doth all she can <coughs> to make her foster child, her inmate, man, forget the glories he hath known and that imperial palace whence he came. 
So now there's a theory about why we love nature so much as children. It's partly that we see things with eyes that have recently looked upon heaven and are still surrounded by its glory. And it's partly that Earth itself attempts to give us a substitution for the glory we have lost. It's not that nature is the greatest thing in the universe. He puts it in another poem, nature then was to me all in all. All in all being a phrase. We, we talk about all in all as all in all I had a pretty good time. All in all is actually a phrase from Paradise Lost and it's about God. Um, when the end of time comes, God says of himself, then God shall be all in all. Um, will be the self-possession um, of all things in themselves. God will be everything and everything will be God. Um, Wordsworth, as he often does to Milton, turns what is religious in Milton into purely natural imagery in his own poetry. And so Wordsworth, where God is all in all in Milton, Wordsworth says nature to me was all in all. Nature was God. Not God. Not that God was God. Nature was God. But here he's saying, no, nature actually is the substitute. So the, again, the first four stanzas is, I once saw how great nature was, but I lost it. Now in stanza six, he's saying, actually, the greatness of nature was not the solution, but the problem. The greatness of nature was not the greatness of my soul, it was the first descent of the soul to think that nature rather than the, the imperial palace whence the soul comes, to think that nature was great, was just a way of forgetting the imperial palace whence the soul comes. Look at this child, he says. The child he's referring to is Coleridge's young son, Hartley. Um, you don't need to know that for the poem, but um, Hartley makes an appearance in several romantic poems. Um, and he later wrote some poetry himself. He edited his father's poetry, and he said of his father's poem, Frost at Midnight, does anyone know that? In Frost at Midnight, um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge is describing, it's a great poem, um, is describing um, an incredibly cold night where everyone is asleep in the house. It's 1798. Everyone is asleep in the house. Um, but he alone is sitting up late and musing. And he says, and right next to him is his child, his babe so beautiful. His infant son is lying in a cradle right next to him. Um, Yeats may be thinking of that in a cradle song. My child's so beautiful, he says. And he ends the poem with a blessing in which he says, unlike me, you're going to grow up in the country and you'll have this free spirit. You'll be like Wordsworth and not like me. You'll have a Wordsworthian childhood. It will be great. Hartley commented on this poem when he edited his father's works. Hartley, um, who had a miserable life, um, he had a single dry comment on this. Poets often do not prove prophets. Um, he didn't have the life his father anticipated for him. Um, because life sucks. Um, because you drink and you fall in love with the wrong person. He was gay, most likely. Um, and, um, and that was not a good thing to be. 
in 1839 and um, lonely and things didn't go well for him. Um, so, but it's the promise of youth was what Coleridge was writing about. But if someone writes a poem about you as a baby and then you're a middle-aged man, um, it's not going to be fun to read the poem they wrote about you as a baby, especially if they're one of the greatest poets who ever lived. Um, you might be pleased, but there'll also be a kind of mommy dearest aspect to this. Um, you know the movie Whatever Became of Baby Jane? All right, well, remember the Merrill quotation that I gave you before. Um, italics, there would be a photo of me, italics under which would say, and still do, now and then I fear, is this child alive today? Last hopes disappear. The hopes were in Frosted Midnight. Why not? Actually, this stanza answers it, and we have 30 seconds to go through it. Behold the child among his newborn blisses, a six years darling of a pygmy size, the worst line in the poem by far. See where mid work of his own hand he lies, fretted by sallies of his mother's kisses, with light upon him from his father's eyes. See at his feet some little plan or chart, some fragment from his dream of human life, <coughs> shaped by himself with newly learned art, a wedding or a festival, a mourning or a funeral. And this hath now his heart, and unto this he frames a song. Then will he fit his tongue to dialogues of business, love, or strife. But it will not be long ere this be thrown aside. And with new joy and pride, the little actor cons another part, filling from time to time his humorous age with all the persons down to stage with all the persons down to palsied age that life brings with her in her equipage as if his whole vocation were endless imitation. Look at this child imitating all the sorrows of life and doing it with the spontaneous joy. That's great, or is it? And then the next stanza is going to say, why are you doing this? You are close to heaven, and all you're doing is pretending to be a truck rooming around the house. Um, why want to live like an ordinary person? Okay, we didn't finish. I owe you five bucks, but it's not real money. Um, but have a good bucks. five intellectual bucks. Have a good break. Uh, remember, no class tomorrow. Um, read the poem many times. Read Frost at Midnight. It's not many. Well, read it as many times as you want. Um, but read Frost at Midnight, and we will, um, one way or another, finish this poem after break. So have a good break. Enjoy President's Day. It's just a really swell holiday. <laughs>